Thanks, Greg. When Greg was walking around with the microphone there, I thought he was going to break into a song like Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Great to be here at, where are we? Pitt Town. Great to be at Pitt Town once again. Um, no, I was only joking. Uh, I had, you may remember we had Nelson Mandela's bodyguard here a year or so ago. Well, Rory was back in town and we only got him on a plane on Tuesday. And Rory and I were up in Tamworth on Monday night and spoke, uh, I, I interviewed Rory as I did here at, uh, at the Tamworth Town Hall. And we had a wonderful night there and really focused on the drought. And uh, it, it was that afternoon we went and visited one farmer uh, just out of town who would normally be running 350 head of Hereford and uh, had de-stocked down to less than 50. And the nine dams on his property were absolutely bone dry. Just to give you an idea of the severity of the drought. There's going to be a special service at St Andrew's Cathedral at 10.30 tomorrow. Not saying that so that you might go. You'll go to church here. It's a long way away. But the Archbishop is uh, speaking. Colin Buchanan is singing. And uh, I'll be interviewed by Kanishka Raphael about the drought situation. And uh, thank you for the reminder for, uh, for us to give to the drought. Please pray that we get some really good soaking rain. Um, being on the rural urban edge of Sydney, and I've been in a few churches on the edge in the last, uh, in the last fortnight, uh, people are, farmers are being affected this side of the range as well. It's, not, it's very, very severe that side of the range, but this side of the range as well. Henry, like Rory, is a global ambassador for Anglican Aid and you didn't come here tonight to hear me, you uh, came to hear our guest. Henry, it's great to have you here. I'm going to ask people to welcome you in, an, in the way they normally do. Good evening everyone, thanks for having us. Henry... That food was yummy by the way. It was great, I've already spoken to the chef and I uh, can't see, he's probably out cleaning up for us. Uh, it was certainly a great meal. Great. Henry and I on the way out were talking about what we might get for supper and uh, it was fantastic. My oh, juice sorry. fast begins on Monday. Monday? I Monday. thought it was, I I thought it was tomorrow. It uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, um, your life starts not in Zimbabwe but in Kenya and uh, you've lived in Kenya, Zimbabwe, South Africa, England, Australia. Have I missed anything out? No, I think it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've been the resident of five nations and now you're here in Australia. Are you aspiring to a career in federal politics? <laughs> well, after last week. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, tell anyway. us, tell us uh, where it all began in those early years. Well, I was very young when I was born. Um, I was born... <laughs> Sorry, I've got a lot of dad jokes today. Um, I was born in Zambia in uh, Lusaka, the capital city, in 76, so I'm, I'm 42 this year. Uh, my mom and dad met there in a hospital. Dad was a, a, a pediatrician, a doctor. Mom was a nursing sister, and pretty soon he used his charms and uh, wooed her, and they got married. And uh, my brother was born in 74, so he's two years older than me. He's actually always been two years older than me. And uh, we then moved from there to Nairobi. 
Uh, and it was there that my mom discovered a little known fact about uh, her husband, which is the fact that he had no point, at no point in the marriage, had he mentioned that he was actually married to another woman and had 10 children with her. So actually there were 12. There were two that died in childbirth. And I, uh, obviously, my mom stumbled upon this fact uh, because she saw a, l- a few boys running around at family barbecues who bore more than a passing resemblance to my brother and I. So on making inquiries, of course, the truth came out. She was mortified and horrified and decided she wanted to leave the marriage. But uh, they did what they used to do back in the day in the 70s. They hauled her in front of the, the, the tribal council, if you will, <laughs> sat her in the middle of a circle and told her to just get on with it. Um, but she couldn't accept that, of course, and so she fled, if you will, to Zimbabwe, where she was from, settled in Harare, the capital city. And uh, my dad, of course, now that he was found out and seeing that his second marriage was falling apart, tried to make peace. Uh, that was never going to happen. But he decided, for whatever reason, that he still wanted to live in Zimbabwe, perhaps so that my brother and I could be closer to my mom. And so life began for, for us in 1980, which coincides with the year that a man called Robert Mugabe was uh, elected as the first black leader of what was formerly Rhodesia and had turned into Zimbabwe. So that's how my life began and Henry, in that a, country. <coughs> from a very early age, you went to a boarding school, both primary and at high school. What was that like to spend most of your schooling at a, resident, at a boarding school? Well, very abnormal, boys-only schools, you know. <laughs> very, <laughs> very strange things happen there. So one of the things, of course, is uh, the fact that uh, you, you're very focused. If you're at school 24-7, you've got a lot of input from teachers. Uh, your time is regimented, so you, when you wake up, there's a bell to do that, and there's a bell to go to class, there's a bell for lunch, etc. Um, but you've also got opportunities to, get to indulge in activities that will hopefully better you as a person. So I got involved in, in a few things like singing, arts, uh, and also stumbled upon sport. And sport be- became very much a part of my life for many, many years after that. So I started a junior school, at boarding school, uh, at the age of eight years old. And at a very young age, I discovered a couple of things that became very useful. The first was I could run very fast. Now, I am half Kenyan, so I don't think that should have been hard to figure out. <laughs> You've heard that Kenyans are good at running races, haven't you? There's a Kenyan who ran a few years ago to illustrate the point. His name is... Um, Uh, Barack Obama. So Kenyans win races. Anyway, (laughs) I told you there was more where that rubbish came from. Anyways, um, (laughs) so I I discovered I could run very fast. Uh, Two things happened. The first was I was at school one day and I was on my way to the the loo, which was a few uh, meters away from the school block where the classrooms were. Uh, And as I went past this one very familiar corner, which had the dustbin, I heard a rustling sound to my left. And when you hear a rustling sound in Africa, you investigate what it is very quickly because there are about five animals that want to eat you in Africa, unlike here in Australia. So I I turned and I saw, I must have been about this tall, and I I kid you not, there was an African spitting cobra looking at me eyeball to eyeball. And all I know is five seconds later, I was 100 meters away. If Usain Bolt had raced me that day, I think I would have won. (laughs) So I knew that when the adrenaline kicked in, I could run very fast. Henry, Henry won't tell you this. He's far too modest. At the age of 16, at a schoolboy athletics meet, he was clocked doing 100 metres in 10.6 seconds. That's because there was a lion chasing me. (laughs) 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 Well, the the second thing that happened uh, to illustrate the speed was um, I raced my brother to the ice cream man. Um, We we used to have these ice cream men on on tricycles with a big box on the front. Do you guys ever have that here in Australia? 
you had the van. Well, we had the little tricycle. And he used to ring a bell. And uh, he'd come and gone maybe 30 minutes or so. And I knew that he couldn't be too far down the road, maybe 100, 200, 300 meters, who knows. But I said to my brother, I'm gonna r- I'll race you to the ice cream. And I found a dollar coin in the garden. I said, I'll race you. We're going to get some ice cream today. Um, and, and he was wearing trainers, what you call sneakers or, or, or cross trainers, whatever you call them here. Uh, we call them tackies in Africa. And, and I was wearing what uh, you guys call very ambiguously. It could go either way. You guys call them thongs, but we call them the flip-flops or patapatas. <laughs> anyway, I, I raced my brother in these, uh, in these thongs, if you will, and I beat him. And when we got to the ice cream, I said, boy, you're fast. And I guess when you're young, you d- you've no idea how good you are at something until someone says you're pretty good at it. So that was, he was the first person to affirm that gifting in me. And so um, I started in enjoying running and, and getting involved in various sports. And so the sports I got involved in multiplied from track and field. I discovered I could run fast, throw a cricket ball a long way. We had a thing called the cricket ball throw. Uh, and, 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 but I didn't like long races because I've got a theory. Running is painful, so the quicker you get over and done with, the better. Uh, so I stuck to the short races, 100 meters and 200 meters. But I also just stumbled ac- across other sports, of course, that need speed or require it. Like, like f- and I am talking about real sports. You guys use the term very loosely in this part of the world. Uh, I've, I've got qualifiers, two qualifiers. First, you must change your shoes. And second, you must get tired. Otherwise, it's not a sport to me. <laughs> so snooker, heck no. Lawn bowls, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, and, and darts, forget it. Yeah. So anyway. And by that definition, Henry, fishing's not a sport either. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Fishing Whoa, gets in there. It just sneaks. You get tired after a few hours. Yeah, no, no, we won't go there. <laughs> I love my fishing. You've probably <laughs> figured that out. Um, I've never got tired fishing because <laughs> I've never caught anything. Uh, you're a fisher of men, though, aren't you, David? Yeah, anyway, uh, something like that. Henry, I must finish my story, though. I oh must well, finish. You finish. Otherwise, story. I leave them hanging. <laughs> I don't leave them hanging. Anyway, so um, long story short, I, I got into all the sports that allowed speed: soccer, rugby, and and then finally cricket. I, I, I stumbled upon this weird game that had these very cerebrally challenging tasks. You had to bowl a guy out or nick him off or get him out LBW. You know, there's many ways to get... And that was much more stimulating to me than a sport like soccer or a simple game like AFL where you just bounce it, kick it and, you know, pass it. Um, So I loved cricket for those reasons, that it was rather challenging. Um, And I wasn't being serious, by the way, by having a go at AFL. Anyway. uh, we'll We'll come back to the cricket. Uh, you did play a bit of rugby too, I understand. You're in you're in rugby territory here, or at least the rector of Is this league or union? Like no, rugby, rugby, not rugby league, rugby. Yeah, <laughs> the game. They and you played what position in rugby? Uh, well, I, I moved around a little bit. I, I think when I first started out, I was on the wing because they you know, had the speed. Um, but then I kind of got bored there, and, and I moved to fly half. I wanted to be more in the decisions, and then I moved to outside centre towards mm. the end of my career. And but I had speed. That's all I had. I had speed. Yeah. I was very skinny, but I could run fast. And your brother, Victor? Victor, well, he went a lot further than me in rugby. He played to a really decent standard. Uh, he played for the Zimbabwe team, um, and uh, Wales came on tour. Uh, the Welsh came on tour well, around about the mid-90s, maybe, and he scored a scintillating try. He took the ball from his own 22 and ran through all their players and scored a mass. Uh, uh, it was a great try. And as a result of that, he got offered contracts, went overseas, became a professional for a number of years, and ended up, um, excuse me, being the captain of Zimbabwe for maybe two or three seasons. Mm. So he had national honours as well. I just wanted you to tell that story because you're, you're amongst rugby friends here. Rugby, yeah, but that's rugby, a real sport. That's rugby a real nuts sport. here, if it's I can put it that way. Yeah. 
I, I approve of rugby being a sport. You change your shoes and you get tired. <laughs> we'll come back to the cricket, um, but I want to ask a couple of other questions first. You discovered at a fairly young age that you had a half-decent singing voice. Tell us how that happened. Well, actually, the, the, the discovery was postponed. I, I tried to get into every play in junior school. So junior school in Zimbabwe is from uh, grade one, but I started boarding school in grade three. But you start off at about... I guess six, six years old, and then you go all the way to 12 years old. So in junior school, in all those years, no one ever rated my singing. It's not for lack of trying. I went to all the auditions, but they just never, they just never picked me. <laughs> I, I was looking for some sympathy there. <laughs> I'll try again. Um, I went for every audition, but they just never picked me. Oh. <laughs> Why, thank you. Anyway, so <laughs> in high school, I decided to give it a shot. So... Many years later, of course, I went to the school called Plumtree. Now, Plumtree was, again, a boys-only school, but this had a rich tradition in, in plays going back to when the school was founded in 1908, I think it was. And uh, you can imagine the types of plays that a, you know, an English-style school performed. We're talking about the Mikado, the King and I, the Gondoliers, Oklahoma, that sort of stuff. Anyway, I auditioned. I had no idea what the play was, I just wanted to be in it. Anyone know the feeling of being left out and you just think, I want to be included, please? So I went, I auditioned, and I was picked. Uh, the lady who was auditioning us sat at the piano. Her name was Felix Westwood. I actually visited her daughter in Perth just a couple of days ago. I hadn't seen her for 24 years. That's an aside, but I'm just throwing that out there. Anyway, Felix was on the, on the keys, and uh, she just kind of chuckled when, she, when I sung and she wrote my name down. But I thought... That's a good sign because if she, w she wouldn't write my name down if she I wasn't in. So we were told to go and look at the notice board a few days later to see if we were included, which I did. And, of course, uh, there were a couple of things that caught my eye, and they wiped the smile off my face. The first was that the play we were doing was indeed called Oklahoma. Now, I don't know about you, but there are many other plays that are a lot more interesting than Oklahoma. No self-respecting black man will be in a play called Oklahoma. The second thing I discovered is that I'd been cast as a cowgirl in Oklahoma. <laughs> because in a boys-only school, they have to find the girls from somewhere, and they look at the young boys whose voices haven't broken. And I was one of those, so I got picked. I gave it my best shot. I really did. But to be fair, they had to put on a lot of makeup on me to make me palatable. <laughs> I think I should have been in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, instead of Oklahoma. <laughs> but I gave that role my best, and on the final night, the our very last performance, I was in this green room where we were having our hot cocoa, which was a tradition. It was one of the incentives of being in the play, actually. But anyway, here we are taking our, our makeup off, and this lady, Felix Westwood, the one I just referenced a second ago, just couldn't stop giggling. She was taking mine off. She had a ball of cotton wool and a bit of baby oil, and she's, she just couldn't stop laughing. I said, ma'am, what's so funny? She said, Olonga, I hate to say this, but you're categorically the ugliest girl we've ever had in any play. Now, a weaker man would have capitulated, but I, I, look, to, I look at life very through, through rose-tinted glasses. I, I look at the cup as always half full. I thought to myself, you don't want to be too pretty in a boys-only school, do you? <laughs> and so that was the start of my singing. Um, I then took part in the gondoliers a year later. I was Marco in the gondoliers, the first black man to play Marco in the gondoliers in that school. Never mind the fact that my brother in the play was six foot tall and white. I don't know how that happened. Mother needed to explain it, just like my dad. But anyway, moving on. Um, come to the, my third year, I was in Joseph and many other plays. Finally, Frederick and the Pirates of Penzance. So music became a part of my life. I took part in the choir. Every term I sung, 
then I became a soloist at the age of 14. And it was a very odd mix for a, a guy who was playing rugby and, and, you know, at the end of my schooling, playing the first 11 rugby, playing the first, uh, first 15 <laughs> rugby. I beg your pardon. I do know my numbers. <laughs> Sorry, Greg, the sacrilege of 11 rugby players. Um, but uh, first 11 cricket. Um, and, and so, long story short, um, I, I guess I was one of those weird guys who... But, but the thing is, I got into singing because I looked up to one of my seniors when I was in Form 1 who played in the first 15 rugby and had this beautiful tenor voice that made me aspire to want to do it. And so he was my role model, if you will. And from then on, never looked back. And when I left school, I carried on singing, even though I played uh, cricket in, uh, professionally. And you had the opportunity to train in London, didn't mm. you? To yes. have your voice trained. Further. Actually, um, in my final term of school, uh, a scout came out from the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, a uh, world-famous uh, kind of school stable for creating people who go into the West End. And uh, he heard me sing a song. I think it was The Holy City or something. And he was really uh, enthusiastic and, and positive that I could get a scholarship to go there. So as long as I could get myself to England, they would have uh, gladly accepted me. But unfortunately, this happened, say, late uh, 94 in my last year of school. But unfortunately for me, in a sense, um, within a few weeks of leaving school, I was starting to get picked for teams uh, on the cricket field, uh, from the state prov province men's side through to the national side in early 95. And before I knew it, I was making my, s my test debut. So, mm. as it were, the wheels of life took me in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Henry, the people of Pitjan are very, very discerning people. And uh, I think they'd like to know, I think they'd like to kind of be, you know, sort of Pitjan's got talent, that kind <laughs> of thing. And, uh, and judge your, your... Put your money your where voice. your mouth is, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to hear Henry sing? <laughs> oh, my word. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what to sing, because he's kind of left... Sometimes David makes suggestions, he makes hints as to what I should sing. But um, I was going to sing this one special song, which I love singing, but I've got two church services to preach at tomorrow. He told me in the in the car ride here. It was initially one, and then the Anglicans decided to add another service. So, um, <laughs> so I've got to go easy on my voice. But if I may, uh, this is a very topical song, and it's a song... Uh, th I, the reason I say it's topical is because it's a song that uh, has something to do with the Invictus Games. Has anyone heard of the Invictus Games? You've certainly heard of Harry coming over with Meghan, his wife, or his duchess. Uh, and, and the Invictus Games... Um, uh, of course, for people who are formerly in the military or armed forces or whatever, Navy, Air Force, uh, and they've, they've received some kind of damage to their bodies or their minds, uh, and they have these games for them, and, and uh, they call the Invictus Games. And, and I'll tell you a very brief story behind the, the Invictus words. Uh, they come from a poem written by a guy called William Henley, and he had tuberculosis, I believe, and it, the infection got into his bones, uh, the lower leg, and, and they had to amputate one leg. And, and a doc the doctor came and said, I'm sorry, we, it's gone to the other leg, we're going to have to cut that off too. And he said, hold on, I'll have a second opinion. How many of you think that a second opinion is a good idea? <laughs> so he got a second opinion, and the other doctor managed to save his life. I have no idea what he did, but he did something right, and he saved the leg. And uh, long story short, he was recovering in hospital, and he wrote the words to this poem, which... Chris Martin and someone else have then put to music. Um, it's kind of a funny song because it challenges us, uh, us on two points. The, the first one is 
the indefatigable human spirit that in spite of all the odds that some people face in life, they still get up and go. They find the gumption on the inside, the fortitude to stand up and, and having lost a limb or, or lost a job or, or f- come against great trauma, are still able to stand up, hold themselves up proud and what's the saying, uh, dust yourself off, pick yourself up and start all over again. And, and I, I love the way it speaks into that. However, the flip side of that is it kind of makes it sound like our efforts uh, get us higher. And, and when we think of God, uh, it's been said that all other religions uh, make it as if we are reaching up to heaven to reach God. But Christianity suggests that God himself has reached down to us. That it's not us trying to be righteous in his sight. It's the righteousness of God coming down to us. And there's a tension with this song. David's actually given me his theological opinion on it. So I want you to understand <laughs> that I'm not trying to promote man to just focus on self through the song. But what I love about it is that it says there's something inside of you that in spite of great tragedy, you, in, in, within you you can find the fortitude to make good decisions, ones that keep you going. The song is called I Am. So you can already see why he was having a chat with me. <laughs> By the way, it's adopted as the theme to the Invictus Games, so I think they normally played at the opening ceremony. So listen out for it, you might hear it. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears Looms but the horror of the shade And yet the menace of the years Shall find and find me unafraid It matters not how straight the gate How charged with punishments the scroll I am the master of my fate I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul.
Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, I am the master of my fate, I am the I am the captain of my soul. Henry, I was uh, just thinking, whatever doubts I may have about that song <laughs> theologically... I'd love you to stand in front of the All Blacks after the haka <laughs> and give it to them because that might be better than Advance Australia Fair <laughs> and stir the wallabies up a little bit more. Uh, they need it, yeah, <laughs> they do. Henry, thank you so much for that. It was in those years at high school as well that you really began to think seriously about the big questions of life and the Christian faith. Tell us how that happened. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I just, I just discovered the tension but between two fields in which I was told to listen. I mean, every kid is told to listen to their teachers and listen to their elders. And here I was stuck in the middle of two things that seemed to oppose each other. And I was supposed to listen to uh, both these adults that were telling me whatever they were telling me. So let me clarify that. So on Sunday night, I would go to church, right? It was compulsory. Everyone went to chapel and you wore your best dress. And it was old school Anglican uh, type service. We, s we had an organ, we had hymns from the English hymnal, and we had a message. Once in a while there's communion, etc. Very traditional. But the great thing about those messages, and I had so many of them over the years, uh, because in primary school that was, it was the same. We had Anglican services there, and the same thing in high school. We were at school for nine months of every year, and every uh, week we had a service. So you can imagine that's a lot of services. 40-odd, maybe, every year. And you're hearing a very unified message with a theme that there's a creator God. It starts something like this. There's a creator God. He made everything. He, if you look around, it looks like it's pretty well made. I mean, this place we call home is pretty well designed. Uh, and it looks like there's a designer behind it. And the story in the Bible suggests that it was a short creation week. And if you look at the genealogies, Earth is fairly young and and, of course, you have this God who makes man in his own image and, and, and then goes on to give them one command. They're not to eat from a certain tree. If they do, they will die. They disobey. There's the fall. Uh, but this God, far from being a, a vengeful God, doesn't leave man to himself. He, uh, to themselves. He actually works through humanity throughout the Old Testament and then comes as God in human flesh in the form of Jesus, etc., etc. A message, if it's true, that says we're here by design. We are special to God, so much so that he would die for us. We have a unique place in the universe. All of us have a purpose. We all have a reason to be here. 
We're not an accident. However, of course, I would go to biology class on Monday and I'd hear the total opposite. I was told, first of all, that God was irrelevant. He's not necessary. In fact, all you need is lots of time. So from a shortish sort of creation, now we have an old one, 14 and a half billion years. Now, I'm not here to argue for a young earth, by the way. I'm just saying, if you listen very carefully, 14 and a half billion years versus a few thousand, there's a big gap between the two. Would you agree? So, and then I'm told I'm not actually made in the image of God at all. All that's necessary is for there to be an amoeba that springs into life somehow in the primordial soup many years ago after the Big Bang. We don't know why it banged. We don't know why the soup ended up there. We don't know why the bolt of lightning struck, but it did. And then the amino acids formed this amoeba, or the first primordial cell, which then splits and then mutated and became more complex. And then you had a fish. The fish became an amphibian. Apparently, all life began in Africa, according to Lara Croft Tomb Raider. So if you've noticed anything about Africans, you don't see us in the Olympics 100 meters freestyle final, do you? That's because we like land. So this thing evolves from an amphibian into a land-walking mammal, which eventually becomes a gorilla, and that's your great-great-great-great-great ancestor, great-great-grandma. So from the goo to the zoo to you, from molecules to man, that's basically the explanation for the original life. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know which one of those is true. But what I do know is they are not claiming the same thing. And one of them has to be wrong, surely. We're here, so one of them has to be right. And so I... This led to this great confusion, which led me to ask, who's telling me the truth? And I think it's a fair question, isn't it? That when you're told, when you're bombarded with billions and billions of years ago, and then you're told, there's a God. No, no, there isn't a God. It's very confusing for a young 14-year-old. And so what I did was I just ignored the whole lot, and I decided to actually go into something that was slightly safer. I went into a thing called yoga. Anyone familiar with yoga? So I decided that transcendental meditation was safer, because it didn't ask you, it didn't force you to have to, to wrestle with this big who made the world thing. I mean, in Hinduism, there are like millions of gods. But I was more interested in the stretches and then, of course, the transcendental side where you opened your mind up and basically cleared your mind of, any, of everything, which isn't difficult for me. There's not a lot in there. But you're supposed to do these stretches and then calm down and relax and, and go om or whatever. And you're supposed to visualize things. And so I started some of the exercises. There's a book called Teach Yourself Yoga that I started. And um, there were three exercises. The first was... Uh, imagine um, it's kind of got pantheistic uh, uh, elements to it. So you're supposed to imagine, first of all, that you are uh, sitting in an apple. You're supposed to meditate and sitting in an apple. Then you're supposed to, second exercise, imagine that you've uh, uh, become one with the apple. And then you have to be believe that you are the apple. And after that, I was like, I think there's a Greek word for this. It's called baloney. Um <laughs> I thought to myself, this yoga stuff's baloney, so I moved on from there. Actually, I, had, I told you the story. Uh, I've always told that, that, that story. And a, an Italian guy came to me and he said, that's not Greek, it's Italian, eh? <laughs> I said, I'll keep telling the joke, don't worry. Anyway, so he spoiled my joke. But, but, but I thought to myself, listen, the truth may well always have been in front of me. Because every time I went to chapel, I heard this man, Jesus, claim that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And I sort of thought to myself, well, why not give him a look? So... Eventually, I went in a Christian youth camp. Um, there were mates of mine who always went on these camps. And I, I, they always asked me, and I just couldn't have been bothered. But on this occasion, I said, why not? So I asked my old dad. There was a cost. He was happy to pay the cost, so I went. And it did indeed change my life. Um, the, uh, we had a lot of fun and games, a lot of sport, of course, which was right up my alley. But uh, on the penultimate evening, um, a real sports, by the way, um, on the penultimate evening, the guy got up and he shared from the Book of Romans the idea that... 
yes, there is a God. He's made himself known. He hasn't hidden himself. He's, he's, you can see him in creation. Uh, and uh, he's revealed himself to us, uh, human beings, uh, in many ways. Uh, but one of the primary ways he's done that is through the Bible and, of course, through Jesus. And then he went on to share a, a couple of scriptures. The first was Romans 3.23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I didn't need convincing that I was a sinner. I'd done enough wrong things up until that point. Um, and then he went on to share 6.23, which says, uh, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life uh, through Christ Jesus. And then he finally ended up with an encouragement for anyone there who wanted to make peace with this creator. The creator they may n- have never known or have given the time of day to uh, if they wanted to invite him into their hearts, they could say a short prayer. And that was based on Romans 10 within that chapter, is the idea that if you call on the name of the Lord, uh, you shall be saved. And I, you know, I don't know, I, I've been saved physically from mortal danger, and, and we don't often have time to uh, d- explore that. But, but I think he was talking more about a spiritual salvation, which I think I understood. I think I understood that if there's a righteous God, and he's a righteous judge, that he will judge the whole world at the end of life and give people what their works deserve. And I knew that my sins had condemned me according to those earlier verses and that I deserved death. So uh, if there was a hell, I, I didn't want to go there. If there was a heaven, I wanted to go there. And so I was encouraged to say a prayer. I said the prayer. And that started a journey. You know, it wasn't, it didn't all, the jigsaw puzzle didn't all fit into place straight away. I, I mean, I'm still on the journey, don't get me wrong. But it was a commitment in my heart to at least look at this creator God that I never knew and, and enter into a personal relationship with him. So that was when I was 16. Mm. Thanks, Henry. Henry, I heard a wonderful story about a South African rugby player by the name of Patrick Lambie, who at the age of about 16, 17, virtually changed the culture of his school in South Africa because of his Christian witness. And you became head boy in your final year at school and you were put in a similar situation where you and other Christian leaders were able to challenge the culture of bullying at your school. Tell us about that. Well, I wish I could claim uh, any kind of credit for that, but it all began when we went on a prefect's camp, which was the year before we were inducted. So maybe the last term with the outgoing prefect's board on the way out of the school, and they had this, this was the first time they did this. And there was the camp director was a Christian man, we actually held the camp at a Christian uh, campsite. And he's the first person who challenged us. He, his kids, I think, went to a school where there was no bullying. But in my school, bullying was very traditional. It was very old school. I don't know if some of the gentlemen in the room m- will understand what I mean when I talk about a Victorian-type boarding school. There were certain things that happened there that don't happen anymore, uh, like teachers could cane you. Uh, indeed, senior boys could do the same thing, prefects. And... Uh, he, he's the first person who challenges us and said, do you guys, I know, you, I know it's part of the tradition of the school, but do you, have you guys actually thought to yourselves or asked yourselves if it's actually right? And he said, why don't I, he challenged us, he said, why don't I challenge you guys to become the first group of leaders that actually seek to eradicate any kind of bullying, physical, emotional, etc. So I'd already been selected as head boy. I had uh, actually served a couple of terms as, as, as a prefect way ahead of everyone else um, and, and, and so I'd seen the culture and I uh, kind of agreed with what he was saying it was quite radical but I approached my deputy who was a Christian and, and I said I think he's right we've got to do this and so the next year look there, we weren't the police who were who had access to CCTV at the school the whole year I'm sure bullying happened 
Mm. I'm sure the culture took a while, maybe even years after we left to change. But we got the ball rolling, and I th- I'm convinced that Christian faith was at the center of it because I, by this stage, was a Christian for two or so years, and I discovered I had this thing called a conscience, <laughs> which was very inconvenient, you know. <laughs> Things that you thought were okay all of a sudden bother you. <laughs> it's a wonderful example of the way that our Christian faith transforms our life and changes the way we think about other people yeah. and the way we relate to others. I think it's an example of the way that we're to be followers of Jesus 24-7. Yeah. You leave school. Let's, let's go to the cricket now because uh, you're well known as uh, an international cricketer. Uh, you've only just matriculated, left school and you're called into the national team. Tell us how that felt and... I don't know what they were thinking, first of all. (laughs) But uh, So I think I touched on the fact that I had a kind of meteoric rise in my last year of school. So as a schoolboy, they'd already identified that I had a thing called pace. So remember, I I was speedy, quick, but as I grew older and matured and got stronger and I got into weights, etc., I became the quickest bowler in the country, even as a 17, 18-year-old. And speed was something the country needed. Now, Zimbabwe received test status in 92, I think, um, my schooling ended in 94, and so I think we played a couple of test matches. New Zealand, uh, maybe India, Sri Lanka, um, hadn't come close to winning. And one of the things they thought was, we don't have any fast bowlers. But we've heard there's this young black kid from Plumtree, a- and I just started to play what we call test uh, state cricket here. Uh, in, in Zimbabwe, we call it provincial cricket. Um, but and, and I'd started playing against international players from the Zimbabwe team. So David Houghton, some of you may have heard of at least Andy Flower, probably our most famous uh, cricketer. Uh, Heath Streak, I played with him, and many others. I won't go through names, but uh, I essentially put my name on the, on, on the map. And uh, within a um, couple of months, I was being put forward to play. I played in a warm-up match against Pakistan in the f- match, final match that they were going to play before the test match. I did okay in that. But there was a little bit of controversy. Anyway... Just hold that in your thoughts. Um, uh, I then made my debut um, in February, I think, of, of 95. And uh, I got a call. I, 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 I was actually told to stay on after that match, the warm-up match. And then they, they gave me my, my, my cap on the morning of the match. And uh, I think Zimbabwe batted first and made lots of runs. And then it was time for me to go on the field. Tell us what happened when you were... Uh, first of all, the youngest player ever to be selected for your country and the first black player. I think that needs to be established. What happened when you went on to bowl (laughs) on day two sometime? Well, um, again, I'll I'll, uh, clarify that the the reason they picked me was because I was was fast. Um, But I I went from hero to zero to hero to zero, and I'll explain how that happened. So the first thing that happened is, as you mentioned, I was the first black player, so this was historic. Uh, Up until then, the team was all white. Uh, and uh, uh, they they really felt this was momentous. Mugabe was there. Heard of Robert Mugabe? Uh, he's, a, he's a dictator, uh, very much similar to a lot of other African dictators. Um, we've had lots of uh, dictators in Africa. Uh, one of them was called Mobutu. Remember him? Another guy called Idi Amin. Uh, they're not very bright, uh, these dictators. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little story about a guy called Idi Amin. He bought a boat. And uh, apparently, he wasn't too uh, adventurous with his naming because he called it the idiot. Um, I think he should have thought of that one. 
Um, sorry, dad joke. I had to throw it in. <laughs> in any case, Mugabe was there and uh, the press was there. The international press was there. Some of those journalists who were there are still friends of mine to this day. But it was a big moment. And when I walked out onto the field after we'd batted for a day and a half and scored 500 and something runs, they all, as one, stood up and gave me a, a standing ovation. Uh, they recognized how important it was. I think as an 18-year-old, it was kind of almost lost on me, you know, how, we, how significant that moment was. Because all through my schooling, I was just another player, and I played in integrated sport. So I played with and uh, against white players and black players, and so it wasn't a big deal for me, even Indian players or Asians. So it, 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 but here I was now, bursting through as, as the first black player, and so anyway, the moment was recognized with a standing ovation, which was very sweet. I don't even think I knew what a standing ovation was, but anyway, so I, I went on, and I was a hero. I then went to zero after my first delivery. Because although God had gifted me with speed uh, when I was born, I think he forgot to give me accuracy. So um, the ball, they used to say, when I let the ball go, they say, used to, there was a saying, when a longer lets the ball go, he doesn't know where it's going to land. I never let it bother me because I'm that half cup full kind of guy. I thought to myself, if I don't know where the ball is going to land, how in the world will the batsman know, right? And so that kind of worked once in a while with the element of surprise with a straight ball. But my first delivery was four wides down the leg. It was terrible. I worked my way back into people's good books by bowling uh, or getting a wicket. I got a guy called Saeed Anwar out with my third delivery. So disastrous first ball, successful third ball. It was down the leg. It didn't deserve a wicket, but he tipped it. We appealed. He was given out. So I was, I was back to hero. Uh, and then I went back to zero. I need to demonstrate. How many of you don't follow cricket here? So I, I, kn I know that, uh, yeah, I knew you didn't. John. Um, his wife, he tells me, is more of a cricket tragic than he is. Anyways, so for the benefit of John, <laughs> in cricket, you're supposed to bowl with a straight arm. This is a legal delivery. It, it, that's okay, isn't it? So if, if my arm comes over like that, that's fine. If it bends and then straightens, that's technically illegal. Or, or chucking, as, as, as she said. Yes, die or D said. Um, but, um, you know, if you come from Pakistan or Sri Lanka, you can just do what you like. They don't observe that rule. Um, <laughs> But I stayed at zero. You can imagine, this is, this is a, it's a slur. They, there's all sorts of names they put on you. Uh, they, they call you a thrower or a chaka. And, uh, the last, in fact, uh, there was a guy who came up to me after this happened. I think this happened in the morning session. And an old guy came up to me. And I think he was, he, in fact, I know, he was a parent of uh, a schoolboy that represented my, my school, but he was captain of Zimbabwe schools. Uh, his name was Bord Dylan. Anyway, he came up to me, and I think he thought he was cheering me up. But this had just happened, and he came to me, and he said, young man, he said, the last person who got called for jucking 32 years ago never played for his country again. <laughs> I think he needed lessons in diplomacy. Anyway, so it didn't, it didn't make me feel great. And, and, and what happened next? I mean, we won the match, and uh, it was our first test victory against a, a major nation. They were world champs when they came to Zimbabwe. Remember, they'd beaten England in the World Cup. Um, but but it, it was great for the country, but bittersweet for me because I then had to go and remodel my action. So it took me all over the world uh, and in 95 I went to India. I went to a place called Madras. It's now called Chennai and I worked with a man you would know called Joel Ghana and a man you might not know called Dennis Lilly. Um, so I worked with them in Chennai and, and just sort of got the rudimentary things fixed because as a kid I didn't get supreme coaching from a great coach who knew where the arm should go and in, in sport, it's very biomechanical, and if something goes in the wrong place, it actually can lead to a bad technique, which is what I had. And we just didn't have the expertise in Zimbabwe, so they felt they needed to send me overseas. So in '96, I got sent here to Australia. I went to Adelaide. 
Adelaide was where the Cricket Academy was. It's the same academy that produced players of the ilk of Glenn McGrath, Shane Warne, Michael Slater. And I was here for three or so weeks. And that trip was very uh, interesting for me because that's where I met my now wife. Um, uh, there's a bit of a story behind that. We might explore that later. I have no idea. It's up to David. But um, 97, I then went to South Africa and spent some time in Johannesburg with a man called Clive Rice. And in 98, I was then deemed to be legal again and then came and played for another five seasons, um, did okay, uh, took 126 international wickets in total. We had no 2020 back then. We just had 50 overs in test cricket and uh, I played 30 test matches, 51 days, had an okay return, like I said. Um, some highlights, I, for those who care, which is like three of you in the room, I took uh, my best figures in international cricket used to be six for 19 against England in a one day up. But then I realized that everyone got their best figures against England, so it doesn't count for much. Um, I think five wickets uh, uh, in a test match, five for 75 against India, best performances. Matter the match a number of times. But really, most people don't remember me for my cricket because... But Henry, your favorite wicket? Oh, favorite wicket. We don't have the video tonight, do we now, David? Well, we could probably... Uh, well, I don't know. Don't worry. <laughs> um, my favorite wicket is a man called Sachin Tendulkar. Anyone heard of him? Probably the most celebrated cricketer after Don Bradman. <laughs> we speak about Tindalk in hushed tones here because Bradman's the man, isn't he? Um, but um, Sachin, of course, went on to score like 100 centuries or something crazy. Um, and it was in the, ninth, the year 98 when I was working my way back into the side. I'd done well in the test match, man of the match. Uh, and I'd, because I'd done well and they liked my pace, they put me forward to a tournament I wasn't originally picked for. So they put me forward to a, a tournament in Sharjah. Uh, India, Sri Lanka, and ourselves were playing. Anyway, we got into the thick of the tournament, and we eventually qualified for the final, which was unheard of. We beat Sri Lanka, and we beat India once or, or twice, and so we were through to the final. And Sri Lanka were on their way home. And, but there was one more match to play. Uh, so that's technically called a dead rubber. Do you understand what a dead rubber is? It doesn't matter who wins or loses. Both teams were still going through to the final. So because of that... They could afford to pick or longer, you understand? Because <laughs> there's nothing riding on the game. So they picked me. And uh, one of the things that we discussed the night before this match was the fact that we wanted to tighten up a few things in our game. And one of the things that was happening was some of the players, too many bowlers, and we were coached by a batsman, of course. So too many bowlers were getting wickets off no balls. And they wanted to eradicate this practice uh, uh, by fining you your, your match fee. So basically, you got a wicket off a no ball, you were playing for free. So Olonga gets picked, and what does Olonga do? He bowls some really good... Do you, do you understand what a Jaffa is? An unplayable delivery. He bowls a few really good balls to Tindalka. He misses. He nicks one that goes for four. He hits a lofty one into cover. And eventually, I get him to nick one. I, it's just pitched beautifully. I mean, it's just poetry in motion. The ball's... Angled in, it just hits the sea, moves away, cuts, catches the outside edge, and halfway to Andy Flower. Because as a bowler, you know, I've got him. He's nicked it. I hear, no ball! <laughs> ah, so I'm thinking, Greg, I'm thinking, I'm playing for free here. <laughs> so one, I was disappointed that the world's, arguably the world's best specimen was out, but not out. And secondly, I thought, I'm, get, I'm, you know, I'm getting paid nothing for this. So I was so mad at myself that I got him out the very next ball. I ran up and just... You know, just put everything into the next ball and bounced him out. Uh, you could see it on YouTube. And uh, I was man of the match and ended up uh, getting a nice little check, which was more than I would have been fined, so <laughs> I was okay. 
Um, uh, but but long story, he got mad. He got mad, and in the final, it was mayhem. He, it was it was murder. <laughs> he just, he smashed me. I think he scored a hundred in about thirty balls, uh, and they won the, the final. And so that Henry, was uh, the most embarrassing catch that you've dropped. Well, there are quite a few, but I, I think <laughs> I think I think in my on on debut, I dropped a man called Inzi. Do you remember Inzi Mawulhak? I mean, that guy normally got run out, uh, but he top edged a hook from Heath Streak on debut. Remember, on on debut, and uh, we've got 500 runs, plenty of runs to defend, and their best batsman arguably has top edged. And I ran in, and I, I didn't even get close to it. I sort of lost it in the sky, and then, oh, too late. And you should have seen the look that every player, you know, hats <laughs> dropped. And, and that was that was embarrassing, because I'm the new kid on the block. It's the first thing I do of significance mm. is, is, is drop Mr. Uhak. I understand you dropped Steve Waugh. Oh, you're talking about that one? Oh, my gosh, you're talking about that one. I told you there were a few. <laughs> well, uh, yes, Steve Waugh, uh, playing in, at Harare. Uh, Australia came on a tour, short tour, one day, a few one days, and, and this test match, one-off test match. Steve Waugh, 96. I'm at mid-wicket. The ball came at that awkward height. At least that's my excuse. You know the awkward... Any cricket players here, except for John? Any cricket players? Any, anyone? Anyone? You know that awkward height? So when you take a catch above... <laughs> All awkward if you miss it. But in, in cricket, when the ball's sort of above your head, you point your fingers up to the sky... When it's below, you've got, you've got to point down. And there's that awkward height where you know, you're not really sure what to do. And it came straight at my solar plexus. And it just basically went straight through. All I'm going to say is, I deserve honorary Australian citizenship for gifting Steve Waugh his 100 that got him 100 against every nation. <laughs> he actually got 150 in that match. Yeah, he did actually. And he's the he's only dropped three times only actually. player to get 150 against every that's, test that's right. nation. That's right. Tendulkar hasn't even done that. No, wow. No, that's right. No, no, Jacques yeah. Cullis, not even him? No, no. Wow, that's an achievement. Yeah. Henry, the 2003 World Cup being played in Zimbabwe and South Africa, uh, you've been selected and you and your captain, Andy Flower, do something that means that you have to flee the country and live in exile. Just take us through that. Well... Remember that nice guy, Mugabe, I mentioned earlier? Well, um, Mugabe's got quite a rap sheet. I mean, he's not in power anymore. So this, this is kind of weird. Me, this, this is the first one we've done since he, he lost power. I think it is, actually, isn't it? Uh, so Robert Mugabe lost power in November-ish last year uh, in a coup that wasn't a coup. That well, I think the whole thing is cuckoo. Anyway, um, he came to power in the early 80s, as I mentioned, 80, 1980. April of uh, 80, 1980 was when Zimbabwe got independence from Rhodesia. A little bit of history. Sorry for those people who already know the history, but Zimbabwe used to be called Rhodesia, a former British colony. We had English law. Uh, but one of the things we had that was very unfair was a thing called segregation. So generally, black people or people of color uh, weren't afforded the same opportunities uh, as white people, lived in different suburbs, were put in townships, etc. But one of the key differences, probably the biggest, was unless they had a, s a minimum set of qualifications, uh, I don't know what they were, let's say university degree, they couldn't vote. So millions and millions of people were disqualified from the democratic process. And so a minority government, uh, which had, you know, we had a 
maybe 100,000 white people living in Rhodesia, kept winning every election against millions and millions of people. And so this was untenable. And what happened was there was a war that began. Mugabe was one of the leaders, and uh, along with others. Uh, and eventually the war was costing too much. And a man called Ian Smith, who was the prime minister of Rhodesia, said, we've got to come to the negotiating table. And sanctions were imposed, and it was getting really tough. So long story short, Mugabe gets... I'm cutting a long period here, but he gets voted in as the first prime minister, and then the mayhem begins. I say mayhem because in the early 80s, Mugabe uh, oversaw, during his tenure, the torture and massacre of tens of thousands of uh, Matabili people. The Matabilis are a tribe. Uh, they came out of the Zulu warriors from uh, uh, South Africa, from Natal, uh, and they migrated up and they settled in an area called Matabililand. And so that's the, that's the area I grew up in. And they think it's something between 30,000 people and 100,000 people that got murdered by Mugabe's military. N no one was brought to justice. There was an amnesty in 86. And so long story short, if you were a perpetrator, you were forgiven or pardoned, so to speak, by the president. Um, Mugabe then actually became president. He was prime minister to start with. Then he, he, he changed the role. He became executive president. And then in the 90s, there was massive corruption, massive mismanagement. And I suppose the thing that resonates most with people in the West, because they wouldn't have heard much of that early stuff, was probably the f white farms being invaded. Did that get to you guys here? I'm sure uh, the, the, you know, the world news covered it. And um, long story short, Mugabe felt, he was there was a bit of pressure from former war veterans, etc., who were saying, we fought in the war, but what do we have to show? We're, we're poor, we don't have any property, we don't have any land, this is the land we fought for, we've got nothing to show for it. Mugabe fixed this. So Mugabe basically was happy for them to go and occupy farms and take them by force. And this started the land grab, as it's called. That was probably the cherry on the cake. There were many other things. There were MDC, MDC the MDC stood for the Movement for Democratic Change, which was a political party, uh, and, and people in that party were routinely tortured, imprisoned, uh, uh, charged with, uh, you know, trumped-up charges. And Zimbabwe became a very abnormal country. And something needed to be done, but, and I knew that something needed to be done. Everyone in the country knew, but no one knew what would be effective or, or how to make a stand against the corruption, etc. Now, there's a man called Andrew Flower who's, uh, I've already I mentioned him. Uh, he was a teammate. He was one of our most decorated players. He was number one in the world at one point. He's one of the few people, talking about statistics, to retire uh, after a full career with an average over 50. I think his average is 52 or 53, something like that. So he's an elite company. But he came up to me prior to the World Cup of 2003 with a suggestion of doing some kind of boycott uh, to show uh, that there were some cricketers in the team who felt displeasure at what Mugabe had done and what he was doing at the time. And uh, cutting a long story short, um, he wanted me to recruit some of the other players of color. I felt right off the bat I, I couldn't do that. I thought it would be unfair to try and get young players who were in their teens and some of them in their early 20s to come and do a political protest that could potentially endanger their lives or end their careers. So I proposed that perhaps just the two of us ought to do it. Because I felt strongly about it. And my Christian faith had compelled me to come to a place where I felt we need to challenge what's going on in this country. Um, and maybe I'll just touch on that very briefly. Uh, since becoming a Christian, I mentioned my conscience was easy to prick. 
Well, another thing that happened is I got involved in an orphanage. Uh, I'll call it an orphanage for the sake of ease, but it wasn't really an orphanage. It was a day center where kids got given schooling and they got given supplies to take home. And because a lot of them were orphans, they were reintegrated into extended families, so maybe a gran or an aunt. And uh, long story short, uh, uh, after one of these, I did a concert for them. That's what it was. I did a concert, a fundraiser, to try and raise money. And it was on the way home that I just felt a sense of anger because after raising $100,000, which was a lot of money back then in Zimbabwe, um, I, I just felt, isn't it sad that the government isn't stepping in the gap? As a Christian, I knew the scriptures in James, I knew the scriptures in Isaiah that talk about how leaders ought to take care of widows and orphans. The Bible is replete with references about how God is a God of the underdog, if you will. And uh, I read Isaiah 1, verse 17, which says, Contend for the widow and the orphan, rebuke the oppressor. Uh, at least the NIV version says that. And that's a very powerful thing, a, a commendation from the scriptures for you to stand up against an evil oppressor. And uh, so I'd already started thinking along the lines of how do we stand up against this? And then Andy Flower approaches me. He'd been approached by a Christian man who said to him, you guys can't play in the World Cup of 2003 as if it's business as usual in Zimbabwe. You have to challenge this. And so hence how Andy came and approached me. So it took a month or so for us to flesh out what we would do. We met up with a man called David Coltart, who's a mutual friend. David knows him, and uh, he's a Christian man. He's a lawyer, and he, be he actually became a politician in Zimbabwe around um, about the time when I was still there. And um, he helped us draft a statement, and uh, he's also the one who came up with the bright spark idea of wearing black armbands as symbols of mourning death, but not the death of a person, the death of democracy. And so uh, we wore these black armbands in our first match against Namibia in the World Cup of, of, of that year. And um, recriminations were swift. I, I, I then uh, got dropped from the side. I was told I couldn't go onto the field. Uh, and eventually I got death threats and had to, had to flee. And that kind of brings us up to date. Mm. Mm. But not, not up, up to date where you can ask your next question. May I ask for a glass of water? Is that possible? Certainly. Thank you. Uh, Henry, you basically go into exile. You're in hiding in South Africa and then through the generosity of, of uh, friends and people who knew your situation, you get to England. And uh, it's while you're in England that you reconnect with this young lady you met in Adelaide. Just tell us about that. Can I back up just a little bit and talk just, just a little bit about how I got out of South Africa? Because there's some interest there for some people, I think. Um, thank you. Certainly for John, because he doesn't follow cricket. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, so I got the death threats, and then effectively that, thank you, sir, that effectively ended my career, because I knew I couldn't sort of stay in um, Zimbabwe, if, because that's where the death threats came from. But I knew that I needed to get out of the country, and I, there was just no easy way of that happening. However, the night before our final game, and if we lost it, uh, we'd be ejected from the World Cup. I stay in Zimbabwe. But if we won it, um, we, or got a draw, we'd effectively go through to South Africa because they were the main host and the rest of the matches in the second round were being played there. So a, a victory or a draw is great for my cause. Uh, anyway, I prayed the night before, got to the ground the next day, and cutting a very long story short, it rained the whole day. It's a bit like, Im imagine in the middle of this drought, uh, it rains. and. I, uh, well, I prayed that God would help me. I said a very theological prayer. I said, God help. And so 
Long story short, um, there was a cyclone off the coast of Mozambique which moved 500 miles inland, 800 kilometers, and uh, it rained long enough to get the game abandoned, which equals a draw, and that's how my life was preserved by getting us through to the next round in, into South Africa. You touched on the, uh, the generosity of a few people. There was a man called David Tokov, who's now dead, um, but he, w he owned an airline. Uh, his assistant saw my story on CNN News. He felt compelled to help. He called me to his offices. A few days before, I had had to travel to an ATM about a hundred, uh, sorry, a kilometer from my accommodation, and I don't like walking, um, but, but, but so I had to do this a number of times to get enough cash to go and buy an air ticket. I don't know how many times I would have had to do this, maybe ten times. But a few days before, say day five of this one kilometer walk there and back, um, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be easy if someone just bought me an air ticket? And blow me down, I get a text message from his assistant called Vernon, who lives in Melbourne, and he had been following my story and just felt he needed to help. Long story short, they end up buying me an air ticket for nothing and getting me to England. So a little miracle in there of God's providence when I just sort of thought in my heart that I had a need and it was met. And uh, David Tokov, before he gave me that, um, before he said to me he was happy to pay for a ticket, he, he told me something very significant. He said to me, I'm not, not going to ask you to pay me back. I just want you to pass it along. Meaning, you guys may have heard of a film called Pay It Forward. So I don't know if he's the original guy who sort of got the idea going. But he had a website. He's, he died a couple of years ago in a plane crash. But, but he, he said to me, I just want you to pass it along. Whenever you see someone else in need, I want you to just help them if you can. And so it's become a life sort of uh, quest of mine to, to help people. And then I, I got to England as, uh, to, to bring up to speed with the question that David asked. I got to England and I was there for a few months and... Um, I got an email, I came across an email from uh, Tara who I met. Uh, Tara was a young lady who was in a youth group who I'd met at a, an evening meeting in 96 when I came to fix my dodgy action at, in Adelaide. And um, um, I, I, long story short, had just met her and it was very platonic and we just kept in touch over the years writing letters. She was older than me, I was 19, she was 26. So there's a big age gap and I always looked at her as a big sister in Christ, you know what I mean? But then um, she wrote me this letter uh, and uh, this email just asking after me because when the death threats came and I escaped South Africa, I went to England, I went underground. No one knew where I was. And she just said, I'm part of a home group. We're praying for you. Just want to make sure you're okay. So I replied after trying to get through thousands of emails and finally getting to hers many months later and said, hey, I'm okay. I'm in England. And then, then I got paid some money for the World Cup and I thought, I'm here alone. Why don't I invite some friends of mine to come over? And she was one of the people I, I sort of said, would you like to come to England on a holiday? Just visit me. I'm just like, I'm starting a new life. I've got no friends. I've got nothing to do. You want to come over? So she said, great, let's do it. Um, and long story short, she then injured her knee and needed a knee, a knee reconstruction when we wanted to do it. I think it was August holidays because she's a teacher. And uh, so she couldn't do it then and we postponed it to uh, December. So it was then that this age gap, you know when you get a little older, the age gap means a little less, right? So we started talking on the phone in anticipation of her trip, and it was, it was kind of that time when you just go, oh, she's too old for me, and then it was like, oh, hello, maybe she isn't actually, I'm 26 now. <laughs> so uh, we, we kind of flirted, and then it just, it moved from us talking about our interests, sport, God, the Lord, parents, fathers, etc., uh, it moved very quickly into, so what are your hopes for in a partner? And then we got deeper. And long story short, within three months we were married. So how, <laughs> did, we just how did you propose to her, Henry? 
do you really have to bring that up, Mansfield? <laughs> well, I proposed long distance on the phone. Um, I basically said to her, so we, we, we'd sort of come to a place where we really felt there could be something happening here. And so I said to her, um, what would you say if I said, do you want to get married? She said, Mr. Long, is that a proposal? I said, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just feeling the waters. I want to see your response. <laughs> so she said, mm, I don't know, I don't know what to say, maybe. So I called her the next day, basically, and I said, now, come on, tell me, what are you going to do? <laughs> do you want to get married? She said, sure, and so we did. <laughs> the most unorthodox way of getting married, by the way. But I think, to be fair, both of us had come to a place where we, we knew what we wanted in a partner, and sure. so it all fitted, it That's all clicked. Right. And uh, now you're living in Adelaide with we your are. wife, Tara, and you've got two daughters. Why Adelaide? Fourteen years we've been married together, but seven of those, or eight of those, were spent in England. So... Uh, in 2006, my Zimbabwean passport expired, so I couldn't travel anymore. And so, in effect, my fate was sealed. I had to live in England up until I qualified for citizenship so that I could get a passport so I could travel. Um, so that took a long time, and it took, it, took ten it, took, it actually took 12 years in total because of the way visas work. If you change your visa halfway through, it resets the clock. You guys aren't immigrants, so you'll never have to deal with this. But uh, trust me, if you ever go elsewhere, just be <laughs> read the fine print. So eventually, after 12 years, I get um, uh, my, my British passport. And, and so it's time to move. Tara wants to go home. She's missed her family. She's missed, the, you know, living amongst her. She's missed her work. We've got a couple of kids. We want them to grow up with an Australian way of life, et cetera, et cetera. But the most important thing, um, we found uh, England wet, depressing, and miserable. And I'm talking about the people, not the weather. Um, <laughs> and so we, we, we decided it's time. It's time. And it's is, just there any, is there anybody here tonight that we haven't insulted yet? <laughs> because we don't want you to feel left out. So please let us know. Yeah, so, so, so we, I think the main driver was Tara missed her, her life, her family, and the kids. We wanted mm. the kids to, to be outdoors. Or England is, I, I'm not kidding, uh, in winter the sun goes down at four, and, uh, and it's a long winter, relatively. So we just thought Australia, and, and the, the ability for me to go fishing, uh, that all opened up if I uh, would come <laughs> to this country. So 2015, August, we arrived, and uh, we've been here since. And Henry... A question people often ask is, what do you do now? Well, as of right now, I'm drinking some water. <laughs> um, many things. I wear many hats. One of my hats, um, I guess in keeping with this pass it along thing that I've tried to keep up in my life, is, is the fact that I want to help people. And you very kindly asked me to be a global ambassador for uh, Anglican... Uh, <laughs> Anglicanate. I was about to say Anglicare. Oh, that would have been embarrassing. <laughs> That's okay. Um, <laughs> they're, they're friends. Um, but, but what happened was I used to do a lot of... So there's kind of a two-pronged uh, answer in here. I, I, one of the things I love doing is evangelism. I love telling people about God. I love to tell people that there is hope in the world. There is hope beyond the grave. That there is a creator who's crazy about you, who wants you, who loves you. And... Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but there, is, there are forces, very powerful forces, that are trying to convince you otherwise, that there isn't a God. Um, but it's a very compelling message that if you can bring hope to people, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, etc., I, I just love that. I love it. And uh, honestly, I, I've been doing this since um, I, I, was, I was about 18 when I joined up with a man in, in Zimbabwe who told me how important it is to tell people about Jesus. Uh, in keeping with that, I used to work with a man called Rico Tice. 
who happens to be a mutual friend. He's, he's a very good friend of uh, uh, David's. He wrote uh, Christianity Explored. Uh, anyone familiar with Christianity? It's, it's a course you do, very similar to Alpha, um, just from a different sort of stable. Anyway, Rico knew David. Rico knew I was coming here. So I was my final uh, sort of outreach with them at All Souls Langham Place, he said, listen, brother, uh, can I put you in touch with someone in Sydney? <laughs> That's not exactly how and, he speaks. But and, it's and you've regretted it ever <laughs> since. <laughs> and so, so he introduced me to David, and I think we did a, an outreach of some sort, didn't we? We did something together. My memory's failing. But David then um, started the... By the way, David is the CEO. Maybe he can pitch this himself, but David is the CEO of Anglican Aid, and at some point, they wanted to have global ambassadors, of which there are currently five of us. And he approached me and said, would you like to uh, come on board? And of course, once I knew what they did, they work in 27 countries, they work in Zimbabwe. That was a, it wasn't a difficult sell. Like 12 African countries, am I right? Uh, 16, 16 African, countries African countries. And 12 other countries. 12 other countries doing Im incredible work. Clean water, building schools, mm. uh, getting brick kiln factory workers, children uh, educated. They work in the, in the space of trying to eradicate uh, human trafficking, etc. Just amazing work. I mean, they've got a website which David may well tell you about, but as soon as David asked me to come on board, I was, uh, pass it forward, pass it along, pass it along. So um, I, I, I jumped on that. So one, that's one of the things I do. I, I would be hesitant to suggest that it keeps me very busy. I mean, I come this part of the world. What? And it probably doesn't put food on the table either. <laughs> this is true, <laughs> but it's, we're serving the Lord, David. Um, how do you put food on <laughs> How do you and Tara put food So that's on? one of the things I do. So I'm an ambassador for them. I'm also an ambassador for another organization. And again, these things don't necessarily put food on the table, but they're, they're, they're things that are very important to me and things I'm very involved in. Um, in, in South Australia, I, I, we, we have a thing called a prayer breakfast. I, I spoke at that and I sung. And a lady came up to me and said, she would like me to be an, an ambassador for an organization called Second Chances. And I'm sure you can figure out from the name it's all about Second Chances. Well, it's a prison ministry, and uh, we try to work with prisoners. Uh, I, I, I'm a guest speaker at many prisons, been to six so far, and I just share Christ with them. Um, and also, we, we try to minister to their children. Of course, with mom or dad in prison, birthdays get forgotten, Christmas gets forgotten, etc. So I'm in that space as well. Um, I speak in schools, um, and I speak in churches, and, but my main thing is I'm a singer. So uh, I did say to you, didn't I, that I would have a CD ready round about now, <laughs> but I'm afraid it failed dismally. <laughs> so um, I'm in the process of working on making some new music. Uh, in addition, um, I'm a stay-at-home dad. I, I you know, do the stay-at-home dad thing, so I... I take the kids to school, uh, I, I make meals, I clean the house. Um, we do have a cleaner as well to, make the, to lighten the, the load. But, but it's, a, it's a season in my life. How many of you know there are seasons in life, right? And so for, for me, this is my time to re-energize, recharge, get a little bit humbled as well, but doing these menial tasks that in Africa, as you would know, men never do these things. And so it's been a great character-building thing for me to just uh, be a house husband. Um, and in addition, I'm an artist, so I paint. Um, um, and that, I think, is the main space that I'm in. But ultimately, to answer the question, what puts food on the table, I, I'm, a, I'm a professional um, public speaker. So uh, I, I'm with an agency called ICMI. They find me work, which pays pretty well, to the extent that maybe two gigs a month was probably enough because my wife's full-time and she's a teacher. She gets paid well. Um, so I'm just kind of supplementing our income and, and forging forward in what the Lord has. Sounds very busy, Henry. Any time for fishing? 
plenty of time for fishing. That's not that's not work. That's 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 pleasure. And I definitely make sure that uh, my my next door neighbour is a mad keen fisherman. Uh, this is a little factoid for you. South Australia have the best snapper fish in uh, in all of Australia. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Any fishermen here? Yeah, just a couple. So we 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 grow up. We we can get up to uh, 30 pound. Uh, snapper down there so I mean he's a huge fish uh, so it's a bit of an obsession for him and so he's taken me al- along a couple of times and I, I, I was hooked so to speak pardon the pun mm. ladies and gentlemen would you thank Henry Alonga Henry is going to sing another song for us as we conclude and I wanted you to thank him then because at the conclusion of this song I don't want you to applaud. Uh, Henry is going to sing a song which is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And of course at the heart of this prayer is the wonderful relationship we can have with the living God and know him as our father because he gave up his son to make us his children. And so as this prayer speaks about our father, just reflect upon that phrase and think and reflect upon the words as it speaks about the kingdom of God, the rule of God in our lives, as it speaks about God's provision and God's forgiveness and God's protection. So I don't want this to be entertainment. I want this to be an opportunity for us as we've listened to our brother in Christ speak to us tonight, just to reflect upon the words of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, to just to be reminded and be reassured and take seriously the very meaning of these words so that when we say them, they're not just on our lips, but they are words that express our very hearts and our loyalty. Henry Alonga, the Lord's Prayer. Thank you, David. And if I may just say... <coughs> Just a couple of supplementary words to that which revolve around the first song I sung. Uh, which, like I said, is theologically is a bit dodgy and I agree. But the one thing it does mention is that we are the captain of our soul. We are masters of our fate, so to speak. And uh, listen, I'm not getting into the theology of it. Calvinism, Arminianism, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> God calls, God chooses, or we choose. I, I, know, I know this is true though. God's done something, he's played his part, and there's a part we play. There's a response we can make. We can call on on Jesus, we can call on his name if we perceive we're in danger, and that danger is very real, that we may die without God. And so my encouragement to you is, as I sing these words, if you can't say, our Father, if you really, if you re- these words are powerful, but our means there's an ownership of sorts. That he's your God. If you, there's something you can do about it. You're not at the mercy of fate. You can actually, of your own will and volition, think actually, you know what? I want to call on this God. I've, I, I've never cared about him, but I want to actually take a step towards him. And that's a powerful thing to do, and I encourage you to do that if you're on the fringes, if you don't know God, if you have never thought about him. Maybe today is a day to start. And it starts with a good decision of just saying, Maybe let me check this out.
deliver us from 